Transmission will start in five seconds from now. Five, four, three, two, one, in. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons and whack-ass inflections from Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially for you. It's no degree partial. It's a degree absolute. Chris, do you think I'd forget we used to call you Flapjack Charlie? Oh boy, we're going to talk about Flapjack you Charlie. You always did enjoy your food, even oh, before a job from the Black File. Uh, Peter Butter Sandwich Daryl over here. Just call me that. <laughs> God. Nilla Wafers Glenn. <laughs> You'd be what, Cliff Bar Pete? That's right. Working mm-hmm. those jobs from the Black File. Mm-hmm. You do bring certain physical advantages to this mission. Physical advantage of growing a mustache overnight. Okay, just just rub it in that I am uh, forty plus and and baby faced. Very <laughs> cruel. Very cruel. Did you know, Glenn, that in 1966, Patrick Bagoon, star of the long-running TV spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village where each resident is referred to only by a number, surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time, and innately and unambiguously, and also lava lampedly of its time. Mm-hmm. That short-lived, long-tailed series was called... The Prisoner. Who are you? I am number six. Number six! 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 By what evil device and for what sinister purpose is the prisoner brought face-to-face with himself in The Schizoid Man? Folks, we are talking this week about Schizoid Man, the Parent Trap episode, or if you're me, the Double Impact episode of... Sure. The Prisoner. This was the fifth episode aired, the seventh one produced. We've been a little lazy, Glenn, about identifying our sources, so I'm going to try to police that a little more assiduously. In his book, I Am Not a Number, by Alex Cox, the director of Repo Man, among other films, and a a huge lifelong Prisoner fan, a book he published within the relatively brief time frame in which we have been dragging our asses about getting this show together. This is this book was only just published in 2017. So he has his own recommended viewing order. He places Schizoid Man 7 uh, after three episodes that you and I have yet to discuss, but long before A, B, and C, which we, we have talked about. Yeah, I would agree with that because he does seem, 6 seems to be remarkably acclimated. And also the village seems to be stepping up its uh, its attempts to break him. Like they, they seem not not worried about breaking him. So it seems like this should go a little bit later in the order. Yeah, but we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I need to welcome our listeners. Yes, you do. Welcome, friends, to the private, personal, by-hand, punch-card-driven podcast where we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series and... Here we go. We push it like the second yeah. cut of the Superfly soundtrack. Oh, that's good. Five we out file six. it like a chip nail. Um, four out of six. We stamp it like we just kissed an ink pad. Oh, sure. Five out of six. Good. We index it like your back pages. 
Oh, okay. Solid. Six. That's Six a, out of that's a, I don't know. I, I wasn't so pleased with that one. It's conceptual, so I, I dig it. It's going to get thinner as we proceed. It's uh, going to get more abstract. <laughs> it's just like the series. We're going to brief it. Like this message will self-destruct in five seconds. Cool. Um, Four out of six. Uh, different contemporaneous TV show. That's no, feels see, that's like cheating. I, yeah. I, I took a point off. Uh, and then, I don't know. Do you have anything for debrief? You know, I mean, I debrief myself nightly, but uh, yeah, how yeah, many yeah. times can I talk about that? Well, I mean, let us know how much you want to hear about listener. that, listeners. As long as you're using the word "brief" in it's in many different meanings, I think you can kind of keep it up. So yes, you've, you've used the underwear sense, but what about? Uh, oh boy, if something is debrief, it's long, huh? How about that? Yeah, mm-hmm. but I, I just mm-hmm. did that last week with my sick Peter Jackson burn. Yeah, Suck it, Peter that. Jackson. Yep, take that. Anyway, we're going to talk McGoons. We're going to talk MacGuffins. Our inquiry into this still perplexing document is not of a degree. Oh, man. I'm supposed to come up with some new goddamn adjectives every week, too. Are you? Yes. Okay. It's not of a degree sort of. It's not of a degree ad hoc. I've used these before, so I'm sorry, mm-hmm. everyone. It is not of a degree provisional. Glenn, what is it? It's a degree absolute. That's that's right, Newhart. Good work. Do you like uh, do you like the energy I'm bringing to this episode? <laughs> because uh, I listened to the last episode, and I, I feel not that I was phoning it in, but I felt a little, uh, uh, like, flatlined. So I'm going to be up and peppy. This is going to be drive time radio. We're going to be We're going to be up. Well, listeners, you had mentioned that you were double booked that day. There was, was another podcast that may or may not appear before this one that was making use of your, your talents. And I, uh, you know, I kind of <laughs> I kind of felt like maybe you were saving yourself for the, the evening show. Like maybe no, the matinee, when I was you just were as, you were just, just conserving it's, your energy. It's, uh, it's, it's probably glandular as far as I know. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what the hell it is. But uh, yeah, this is just Boy. me. But I'm going to I'm going to put I'm going to smile as I talk. I'm kidding. I'm good, good, good. That. All right. So. As I say, the Parent Trap episode, the Double Impact episode that gives us the delightful equation of two Magoons occasionally facing off against one another. Mm-hmm. This is a studio-bound episode, largely. Very little Port Marion uh, footage. Some sources have suggested that the Helter Skelter viewing order may have been arranged out of a, a desire to hopscotch between episodes that used a lot of location footage and, and appeared lavish and ones that were largely stagey and studio bound like this one. Had I not been reading four books about this series, I, I don't think I would have noticed that particularly. In high def, you do kind of see when McGowan is standing in front of like a fabric backdrop that's meant to look like a... You know, it serves the function that a matte painting, I guess, it would sure. have it meant to, to give a, a stage set some some depth. On the other hand, the scenes where we see him playing against himself look great. They really, really hold up well. They really do, and uh, he is a large reason for that, because playing fake six, he is a very different person. He is much more smug and self-satisfied and really put together... And his real six uh, gets really shaken, like yeah. legit, legit shaken in a, in a really fun way to look at. Now, we will have to talk about the uh, stunt double fight scenes, um, of which course. are less than uh, stellar. But we open with the default number two voice in the Q&A, the in the village. We do get a cutaway shot of the new number two, a non-speaking cutaway shot, so we know it's not him talking. Uh, this is Anton Rogers. Did you IMDb this guy, Chris? Yeah, but nothing nothing really leapt out at me. Yeah, I mean, he had a long career in British mm. sitcoms, you know, no crumpets, please, and mind the privet hedge, mm. and 
the bloke from Cockfosters. These are not their actual names, but they, <laughs> in a way Doesn't they matter. are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a way they, they are. are. Uh, but he is featured very prominently in the 1970 movie Scrooge, uh, starring Albert Finney, where he sings the Oscar-nominated song, Thank You Very Much. Oh, my uh, God. Thank you very so, much. That's the that's, nicest thing anyone's ever done for me. Yeah, yeah, okay. So I saw that. That was the first version of A, of a Christmas Carol that I saw. Huh. Uh, before, you know, I mean, I've since seen 400 stage versions, and I like, yeah. I like every version of this story. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. But that one scared the hell out of me as a kid because sure. of the way that uh, the ghost of Christmas future was depicted as this this faceless wraith, as this hooded figure of death. And mm-hmm. uh, in the scene where, uh, like, after Scrooge is confronted by his own gravestone and he turns to face the, the Grim Reaper, it now has a, a skull inside the hood that we can sort of see. And I don't know how old I was, man, but that shook me. Well, uh, what about the scene immediately after that where he, where the Grim Reaper sends Scrooge to hell, basically? And there are some demons and whatnot down there. I mean, that, that must have been... I, I don't remember that as, as specifically. I don't think I've gone back to this version as an adult. Anton Rogers plays a very much different role. He plays basically a Cockney beer hall singing uh, okay. dude as opposed to his very plummy, very self-contained number two. Uh, so uh, we open in number six's flat. He is settling in. He is mixing with others. He's helping number 24 to prepare for a mind reading act in the village festival, which right. we learn is only a month away. Number number 24, um, who is a pretty young woman played by Jane Marrow. I immediately suspected that he was brainwashed or something because he was being downright friendly and pleasant with a woman. Did you know, Chris, that uh, when Diana Rigg left the Avengers and they were going to do another series, apparently she was in the running to be the inheritor of the Mrs. Peel slot. Marrow. No, I didn't know that. I I can see it. I can see it. I mean, according to Wikipedia, so who the hell knows? Yeah. Linda Thorson followed her, and I, I don't That's know. I don't, exactly I don't, I don't have any strong feelings about Linda Thorson one way or another. So, well, how much, did, how long, how much longer did the show last after that? Uh, a few seasons, but I am, I am loyal to the Diana Rigg mm-hmm. years. You know, I mean, I like the David Lee Roth and the Sammy Hagar Van Halen. Pretty much equally, which is a, a controversial position, Glenn. It is. But that's why we made our own show, so that we can plant our flag on these hot takes. Hot and, and extremely timely. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> matters of pulse. taste. <laughs> she was nominated for a Golden Globe in mm. uh, for The Lion in Winter, which uh, is a great, great movie. Sure, seen it. 17 out of 25 is quite remarkable. Couldn't it just mean that we're. Simpatico? It might, but there's more to it than that. Out of the last four runs, you've got 73 out of 100. You're gifted. So here I was thinking, okay, this scene seems wildly out of character because one of the pillars of Six's personality, as we have seen it so far, besides a kind of general air of of tetchiness, is that he's a no-nonsense guy. Doesn't suffer fools. And what is ESPE than just... complete nonsense. I mean, this episode is positing that this little mind-reading act they've got isn't a trick that they've developed. It is that it's positing that ESP is a thing that exists in the world and that it is a skill that can be developed like gains in the gym, and it bugs me because a big part of the plot of this rests on we, the audience, accepting that ESP is not complete bullshit. Yeah, and according to Alex Cox... Uh, screenwriter Terence Feely 
originally imagined a romance between number 24 and number six. I guess George Markstein was not very diligent about passing on the directive from uh, Patrick McGowan that he was a a total brood. But in in his, his original pitch, number 24 was going to identify the real six by a kiss. Oh, sure. See, Which sounds would... a little fairy tale esque uh-huh. but, um, you know, that's not necessarily out of place in the village and in this show. They certainly don't really develop the ESP angle at all. But uh, when McGowan rejected that out of hand, he said, all right, she reads minds. <laughs> You've got a mental link. Like, like that's a thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I think if they went with a kiss, it would have. It, it would have saved so much of the sweatiness that this ESP stuff is introducing into the script. And just as I'm convinced he's being wildly out of character, he's being badly written, something is wrong here, he remonstrates, number 24, that she's got to concentrate or she won't be ready for the festival. You, you have to concentrate or you won't be ready for this thing that is in this place that I detest and resent and you, you need to ship up and fly straight. Like... So and he also he's being kind of a dick to her at this point and there's the six we know and love because um, is he I mean he's being a little condescending maybe but this is certainly the nicest that we have seen him be really to anybody right certainly and to a lady this is why I think this this episode belongs much later in the run I also think yeah you're right he's not a out and out dick he is just he really allows her to take grouchy. a couple of photographs of him. After saying, you've taken five already. Yes, yes, yes he does. But so so yeah. we do see a second photograph of Patrick McGowan here, and mm-hmm. his face is obscured by the cards he has fanned out in front of his face. But still, you can tell from his eyes, I think we caught him smiling, Glenn. Oh, we caught okay. him smiling. It is, it right. is a rafish kind of fun photograph. It doesn't look like the all-business tough guy danger man promotional shot that doubles as, that uh, photo, yeah. as, his, as his file photo throughout the series. I'm just I'm looking for the name of that test with the cards, the ESP test where you try to identify the shape of the cards. And it, one of these books told me that 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 actually has a, a, a name that would not have occurred to me. God damn it! The fakey fake bullshit test. It's the same one that Bill Murray is administering at the beginning of Ghostbusters to that that lady he's trying to seduce, where he keeps administering the electric shocks to the dude. And but that is a world in which ghosts exist, so <laughs> ESP is a thing that is possible. Right. This is kind of an interesting acting class exercise. You put the scenes together, very similar dialogue, dramatically different objectives. <laughs> this character is trying to get laid. This yep. character is uninterested in that. Yep. Yep. It's important that she's taking a photo of him because she evidently is uh, endeavoring to be a Jill of all trades, a polymath. She wants to enter the village festival under the photography competition as well. He grudgingly accedes. Uh, We learn that it's February 10th. Uh, That seems to be important to the plot. And then he ushers her out the door uh, very platonically. Um, And I think the fact that there is nothing going on between them and we are only told that they have a link and they are simpatico, etc. Makes the final exchange between them at the end of the episode work better uh, and have an extra layer. Hmm. If it was just a romance, it would be uh, just pure love struck, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. this means that they, on some level, respect each other as equals, and that's more interesting. It is. I like that there isn't an obligatory romance in in every episode the way there's an obligatory fistfight. This book, by the way, this is uh, Fallout, the unofficial and unauthorized guide to the prisoner by Alan Stevens and Fiona Moore. And this book says that test with the cards, the square, the circle, the wavy lines is called the Zenner test, but Zenner is not capitalized, so I don't know what the hell that means. If Zenner was named after the person who coined it, 
presumably mm-hmm. it would be a capital Z. So I don't know what's well, up. Maybe somebody who uh, practices Zen is a Zenner. Even that's capitalized, though. Never mind. Yeah. And not a Scrabble word, which is infuriating. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to come to another word that I learned from this episode. So that evening, the uh, village turns on the pulsator light. We learned it's called the pulsator uh, over over, uh, the light over uh, Six's bed. It uh, lowers down. We get visual. We get oral. And the subtitles spell it O-R-A-L. I texted you that. So this is another text message that I expected a prompt response to and didn't get one. But as because the, I think the, the, the subtitles are mistaken, I think it's supposed to be A-U-R-A-L. A-U-R-A-L. That was my yes. assumptions. I think the subtitlers are having a laugh here. I think they're taking the piss because not only is it O-R-A-L, but the parentheses uh, sound effect subtitle that follows it over a shot of number six's blissful face is uh, Humming Continues. Yep, yep, humming continues. Nicely done, subtitlers. The Amazon subtitles anyway, whenever there's that kind of music that means that number six is up to no good out, out walking around the village, it is jazzy crime music, <laughs> which is... Not the three CD soundtrack album for the series that exists, but I have a, I have a single LP that rounds up some of these cues that get recycled quite yeah. a bit. You know, you brought up Twin Peaks a couple episodes ago. When I was doing my Twin Peaks rewatch, I, I had not remembered how much mileage they get out of that Angelo Badlamenti uh, oh, yes. theme that just like, like <laughs> yeah. oh my God, like, it was almost comical how often that recurs. Yeah. And then the finger snappy one uh Uh yeah i guess there was a reason that i remembered them during the 25 year interval when i was not watching twin peaks well on this show there is one that they use a lot which is like like a little thing at the end there (laughs) i hear that whenever he's up and it's nighttime and he's skulking about the village the expression on number two's face as he watches number six be pulsated and uh oraled uh is one of such warm gentle pleasure not like delight it's not like maniacal like mwahaha it is this odd expression of such a warm feeling of pleasure like 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 when you're watching the puppy bowl it's kind of that kind of that that kind of expression you get on your face it's very it's it's striking and they linger on it for some reason uh they use shock therapy uh to switch number six from right to left-handed uh we will see this come back uh, we understand that this is taking place over an undetermined period of time. That will become important later. And number six awakes with dyed hair and a cheesy mustache in what I have to say is a very fusty apartment. Even even for the village's standards, there's just a portrait of a dude in a powdered wig. It yeah, is very like, like Lord Nelson or, or someone. I had not taken notice of his the lamp on his bedside table before, but in... Uh, I guess this is supposed to be number 12's apartment as they're they're yeah. trying to convince him that he's number 12. But it's like a falcon or or uh, you know some kind of bird of prey in a like See, with I was a beak turned down phoenix yeah. or dragon is what I was okay. going to say. Yeah. 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 It's um and it doesn't it doesn't go with the <laughs> the very like uh clubroom kind of uh library and the it's very like it's it's like this is the this is the apartment of somebody who runs a bank. It just it's <laughs> it's it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't sing. So, 
he finds in his closet a blazer uh, with a number 12 pinned to it, and it is a black blazer, right? Because he's... Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is the way we're going to tell them apart. Um, he is summoned to breakfast with number two, and then... This is, my, this is my favorite touch of this particular episode, Chris. He uh, walks out of number 12's apartment, and he returns the village salute with his left hand, and he notices as an afterthought that he did it, and it freaks him out just subtly. It's a nice touch there. Yeah, it's a, that's a good bit. Is this the same scene where he is greeted by the Sikh? Yeah, the guy wearing a, a Death Star, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, okay. which raises all kinds of questions about religious practice in the village, something right. we've not had anything to do with, but uh, I'm for it. But that guy greets him as number 12. Second person of color we've seen in this episode already, because in the control room we have number 106, mm-hmm. who uh, has a line indicating that he's from Haiti. Yep. Yep. So this is, by this show standards, it's a Benetton ad. But uh, by any other thing, it's uh, pretty lily white. Yeah. So uh, number two greets Real Six by pretending he is his old friend, number 12. Doesn't give the name because why would they do that? Even though they're just the two of them together. But village protocols are village protocols. Yeah. We've already mentioned number 24, but she is referred to as Allison by just about everyone. Number six, who she is presumably friends with, but also later on when number two is speaking to number six, believing that he is speaking to number 12 slash Flapjack Charlie Curtis. Mm -hmm. He refers to her as the girl Allison, which just kind of calls the hierarchy into question if they're both warders in uh, the vocabulary of number six. When he talks about uh, separating the prisoners from the warders, then it is a baffling detail that seems to contradict other things in this episode and in other episodes. Yeah, yeah, there's going to be several of those things, actually, over the course of this episode. We learned from number two that he had to pull a lot of strings to get you secunded back to us. Secunded, Chris, is a word that I was this many years old before I had ever heard in my damn life. Do you know what it means? Uh, reassigned? Well, it means arranged on one side only. It's basically like unilateral. Okay. Now, don't ask me to diagram that sentence because I'm not sure it works, but, uh, but yeah, that's what secunded means. Uh, the breakfast uh, that he's given to choose from, because, again, this is a big thing with number twos, is breakfast, a la carte or table d'hote, because French is very international. Uh-huh. <laughs> we are, once again, this, this series is going to beat that into our heads. Do you think I'd forgotten we used to call you Flapjack Charlie? A, that is not a thing one is apt to forget, and B, <laughs> he needs better friends. That is low-hanging fruit. That is like, oh, did you see him? He's... Just all those flapjacks, the regular yeah. flapjack Charlie. Like, come on, like, think. Maybe you don't have a social circle like I do, like Apple Dave and Burger Frank and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Omelette Jim, the lunch crowd. That's their code name. There must be an omelette Tim somewhere around there. All right, so uh, we learned that this person, um, number t- number number 12. Let's call him number Twix because it's Twix. Uh, very confusing. Cool. Uh, let's call him Fake Six. Um, okay. Fake Six. Well, no, this is the real six he's talking to. So we learn that the persona of Fake Six, the person who is Fake Six, uh, was a top field man and that number two sees himself as stuck in admin, which is a nice mm. touch. Yeah. Nice little uh, um, spycraft, tradecraft kind of uh, way of approaching it. And when real six asks, What's it all about? Our prize prisoner, the one we call number six. Toughest case I've ever handled. I could crack him, of course. But I can't use the normal techniques. It's too valuable. Mustn't damage him permanently, Santa Master. And another nice moment in this is that uh, Six gets a look on his face like he's Huck and Tom at their own funeral. Like, oh, I'm their prize prisoner. 
<laughs> Even through the mustache. Even through the cheesy mustache. He's using him as a, because he's a skilled agent and he has a physical advantage. Yeah. And then we get the weird line reading of the episode. You have a unique physical advantage. Physical advantage of growing a mustache overnight. <laughs> he really punches that last syllable of overnight in a way that I have come to love. Now, did you at this point or at any other point in this episode try to imagine, even even though we're both against the prisoner being reframed by contemporary hands, uh, it was done, neither of us liked it, but I, I was thinking of Henry Cavill, stashed and unstashed, playing mm-hmm. against himself. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. Guy Ritchie 2015 Man From U.N.C.L.E. was, in my view, underseen, and mm-hmm. one of the few 60s pop cultural exports that, when it was rebooted, was still set in the 60s, which I also liked. It was it was fun to imagine uh, stachioed Cavill and, and unstachioed Cavill sharing the frame. If you could fit both of them in. Uh, so, fakes... This is real six. Uh, so he's told that his job is to impersonate number six, break his sense of reality, and then he's sent to get worked over by a pair of pretty girls. Which... Yeah, who have, by the way, the lowest numbers that we have seen yet in the series. They are both firmly in the mid-200s, which uh, okay. shows you how their labor is valued. Also, number two makes the sort of dismissive, like, well, but at least they're pretty. Yeah, And their makeup is really bad. They are beauticians <laughs> by trade, and they have terrible makeup. Well, it was a different time. I, yeah. He is let into number six's apartment, uh, which has been changed slightly, and he's very angry about that. This rubbish. It's not mine. And uh, the rubbish in question is a stack of magazines. Like, that's like... He's, yeah, like... And, and none of this shit is his. Did, did he, <laughs> you know, just go crazy with to go see Dennis Shaw, the shopkeeper, and, and buy village-branded beans and black-and-white maps? Like, what well, personal remember... possessions does he guard so jealously that he has in his real apartment? This is the antechamber. Like right? this is the w- the walk-in to his apartment, which is m- basically based on his London apartment. So uh, theoretically, it is okay. his stuff, including uh, a statue thingy. Looks like a trophy, but it's just weird-looking thing, which should be gilt, not silver, which is you know we would say gold, but they yeah. say gilt. Yep. And it's ugly. Whatever the hell it is, <laughs> it probably looks better in silver. His car is the only cool thing. That's true. His That's his true. car and his mode of speech. Yes. His. Locution. The password in number six is informed is Gemini, which because we're right on the nose there. And then it all starts. The whole Patty Duke show mm-hmm. routine, the evil Gilligan routine where, where we have uh, two versions of six. Uh, I really like the line delivery that uh, fake six gives upon walking in. What the devil? What the devil? Oh, very good. <laughs> Very good indeed. One of number two's little ideas, I suppose. Where'd they get you? A people's copying service or one of those double agents we hear so much about these days? And number six, this number six, fake six, is wearing a white blazer with black piping, which he's never done before. And he's also wearing his number, which number six has never done. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are you old enough to remember the show Fantasy Island, Chris? You're going to say no. I know what it is. I, I have not seen it. I know Montalban was the star. Yep. And I know Nick Knack from The Man with the Golden Gun was sure. on it, and that's that's what I know about it. Okay. On that show, Mr. Rourke, as played by Ricardo Montalban, had some kind of vague mystical powers. It was established. And every so often, who would show up on the island but the devil, played by Roddy McDowell. And every time the devil would appear, he would be wearing a black suit with a white tie and a white handkerchief. Whereas Mercado Montalban's Mr. Rourke's default outfit was a white suit with a black tie and a black handkerchief. 
thereby putting them on equal footing in some way, which I always thought was very cool. That's what I thought of when I saw this episode. So Real Six offers Fake Six some scotch, but he doesn't know where he keeps it because they have switched it around on him. Then he smokes a cigar with his left hand, uh, and it's been doctored to be more harsh. And this is what I mean. This scene between the two of them is a lot of fun to watch because Fake Six is so jovial and supercilious, and Real Six is really rattled. Not going to work, you know. Certainly isn't. Why don't you run away and play somewhere else? I have a very strong sense of identity. You have, oh yes, of course, sorry, I was forgetting. You're supposed to be me. You are the goody number six, and I am the baddie who is supposed to be proving you wrong, is that it? That's right, except there's no supposed about it. Why don't we settle this like gentlemen? You're claiming to be a gentleman, too. Oh, very good, very good indeed. That line is worthy of me. We're both claiming to be number six, are we not? I am number six. You are doing the claiming. Yeah, this scene is a real tour de force on a, on a performance level and on a technical level. There are you know, many other instances in this episode where we're looking at the back of one of the doubles, and that's Frank, what's his name, you know, mm-hmm. McGowan's usual double. And you can, can kind of tell in, in those scenes. But in this long two-shot where we have six and 12... Or, or whomever, fucking flapjack yep. Charlie Curtis. <laughs> Curtis, the perfect name for a dick. I'm mock snoring you, Curtis. <laughs> is just great. On the commentary track of this episode, director Pat Jackson, who had worked on Danger Man, who knew McGowan um, for, for many years prior to this and would, would work contemporaneously on the, the Saint and the Persuaders, other Lou Grade shows, he goes out of his way to praise camera operator Jack Lowen, which is nice of him because the artists are up a creek without the artisans, right? He talks about how how the scene was achieved, where you basically shoot the scene once with half the frame masked off, and then you run the film back through the camera and expose the same piece of film as you shoot the scene a second time with McGowan playing the second part of the, the frame. Uh, he talks about how when the crew broke for lunch, they had guards stationed in front of the camera and the lights because if you moved them by a millimeter, the illusion wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess the guards did their job because it looks great. Even even in HD, where we can spot the stunt doubles easily, yep. there isn't even like one of those telltale little faint lines in the middle of the... Yep. If there was, they could have erased it digitally now before the Blu-rays came out, of course. But this is a bit of uh, old movie magic that works just great. I agree. I agree. I think it works really nicely. They go to a virtual shooting range where Fake Six is just dogging on Real Six in a big old way. (laughs) They fence. They quote Shakespeare at each other. Now, it is Hamlet that they quote, which, again, low-hanging fruit. But Uh I would say that that's a pretty deep cut. It is not to be or not to be. It is not uh, sing him to thy rest. It's after the shooting, but before the fencing, right? It's the, like the I'm, I'm for you. It's not I'm for you. What, what is the line? These foils have all the length yes. by my good lord, which is not, you know, it's not, it's not exactly quotable. That's where Horatio dies? Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. Yep. We learn that uh, Six was once on the Olympic team uh, for fencing. <laughs> and apparently also as a boxer. In the same way that Johnny Utah was an FBI (laughs) agent. (laughs) They fight. They have a fight outside the recreation hall. Uh, He is asked if he is orthodox or southpaw. I'm guessing that's a thing, right? Yes. That's a boxing thing? That's right. Southpaw is a left-handed boxer. And how's his form? How is their form? I don't know. It looks a little period weird, but what's important here is that uh, Real Six loses the boxing match much more quickly than he loses the, the shooting contest or the fencing match, because he's already shaken. His confidence has, has been, been blown by these 
prior to defeats. And he takes a shot to the gut and falls over. Very humiliating. In this book, Fallout by Stevens and Shaw, they indicate that originally this uh, battle of who's the real six was also intended to include a mini-moke chase, uh, which was, was scrapped for logistical reasons. Uh, they were back in MGM Bornwood by this time, and the weather had changed in Port Marion. It would just have been too difficult to shoot it. I don't have particularly crippling FOMO over this. No. The uh, mini-moke chase in Arrival was not particularly thrilling, so uh, probably okay without it. I agree. I agree. So uh, Fake Six is interrogated in uh, Number Two's office using a spotlight that apparently has some kind of other component to it because we hear a lot of electronic whirring and beeping. Um, Fake Six insists that he is Real Six, which, again, probably not a thing Real Six would do. He wouldn't respond to his number. He wouldn't shout and defend himself right. saying he is Six um, in the way that uh, Fake Six does here. We also learn that the uh, village shop does not offer Invisalign uh, because, you know, it was the 60s and he's British, so what are you going to do? Um, there is some faffing around with fingerprints that goes on for quite a while. Um, where where uh, number six claims to be able to recognize his own finger. Like, I mean, if you held up some fingerprints for me, I, I don't know what my fingerprints look like. They look like fucking sure. fingerprints. Could you pick out yeah, your fingerprints? No, uh, but I'm not a spy. Right? <laughs> I mean, like, he's, he's, a, he's an excellent field man. Like, that uh-huh. must, be, must be a class. Sure. <laughs> he can fence. He can shoot with the duck hunt guns. He can... He's, Maybe drive a mini moke, although that's not a skill he would have acquired in his past life. So I don't, I don't see what that would have proven anyway. Maybe he was on the mini moke Olympic team. Fake Six calls number twenty-four using her real name, Allison, and asks her to come over with the fake ass ESP cards. And the reason here, I'm throwing that in air quotes, is that he trusts humans, not machines, and he actually believes that there is a mental link between them. Anyway, so he fails the uh, ESP test, but Fake Six passes it. Number 24 says that the real number six has a mole on his left wrist, but it is missing. And there it is on Fake Six's wrist, which causes the technician to be called to the carpet. uh, Because why was there no mole? Which is what I asked the 2010 fall ABC fall primetime television Mm -hmm, lineup. mm -hmm. Very good. It was either that or, or quantitative analysis. Blackboard. I, 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 it's one of the two. Okay, so we have the fake mole that mm-hmm. um, we, we see, uh, again, can't remember if it's Flapjack Charlie or real number six who takes the rips the mole off of their wrist uh, a few scenes mm-hmm. later. But in this early scene between Allison and number six, she knocks over a bottle of seltzer on him and it strikes his fingernail, oh, right. leaving, leaving yeah. a, a genuine bruise on his finger. And this is our only indication of how much time might really have passed, is this little tiny bruise under his fingernail. Mm-hmm. Which uh, number six, in an uncharacteristic bit of good naturedness, brushes off as uh, you know, mortally wounded, wounded for life, some, something like yep. that. Exactly uh, right. Does does not get angry, but the slow migration of this bruise beneath his fingernail is uh, our only clue that it has not been February tenth. All of these nights that he is uh, awakened and hypnotized and electrically shocked and so on. Yes, and he notices this after a fitful night of sleeping when uh, number two and number 12 were both observing him, saying, he's, he's breaking, it's working, I told you so. And his noticing that is uh, all it takes for the memories to come flooding back. There was hypnosis. There was this weird food aversion therapy going on. There was hair dye. There was mustache growing and coiffure attending to. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, he examines the cigarette and finds something's up with that. He examines the cigar and finds something else, a wire in it, which apparently makes it unsmokable. <laughs> I don't know how cigars work. <laughs> and then in the kids don't try this at home department, he electrocutes himself, which just boom, short circuits yep. his whole left-handed conditioning, and it's gone, all yep. like that. Because if you stick your finger in the electric socket once, you'll realize that your parents have been feeding you bullshit <laughs> for years, and you're going to see right through their, their lies. Yeah, it's another little thing that we just kind of have to go, yep, sure. He then leaves his apartment, uh, and we cut to number two, getting a fully clothed rubdown from the butler. Um, yep. Not recommended, that's how you check. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, do that. So when, when you see the butler giving Anton Rogers a fully clothed chafe mm-hmm. risk back rub, what effect, if any, does that have on your evaluation of the theory that the butler is number one? You know, I, I never entertained that theory. I, it just, it, he seemed too ancillary, and I, I never entertained that theory. So, yeah, I don't, uh, and the way that number twos tend to treat him so dismissively would, would seem to... Put the law yeah. into that notion. The get off that Anton mm-hmm. Rogers too gives him is uh, I mean that's almost worthy of number six. That's mm-hmm. like uh, number six being told have a nice day, yep. or would you like another glass of whatever you're drinking by mm-hmm. a, a woman? <laughs> was the the sort of revulsion mm-hmm. that he shows there. Um, he passes an apartment number 241, which I think is the biggest number we've seen here. That must be the guy who sweeps up the hair in the beauticians. Oh, and that person is still still ranks ahead of the beauticians. I think one of them oh, was, really? was 249. Yeah, yeah. They are really devalued. It's it's sucks. It's not right. They are like double, meaning half, because uh, mm-hmm. we go in descending order of uh, importance, of, of what even the journalists, 113 and 113B, 113 are, B, are, yeah. are appraised at. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would I would think that 113B means you don't even merit <laughs> a full number yourself. I think that might be less. So, outside apartment 241, a couple of goons corner him, and I think it's nice to see that automation hasn't completely rendered all village security jobs obsolete. I think that they're still employing some uh, some dudes with meat hooks. Yep. Uh, they ask him for the password. He mispronounces it. He was told it's Gemini, and he says, Gemini. Yeah. Before that, before he's, he's challenged with the password, he says a weird thing that sounds like it should be a password because it wouldn't make sense in any other context. But uh, right. do you want to give this to us? No, I don't remember it. What he was says it? The atmosphere is very different here from what it was elsewhere. Mm-hmm. It is a deeply weird observation. It is a deeply weird observation. It's meant, I think, it, it could be trying code, but or, or it could just be him trying to pass the time <laughs> with small talk and what happens if you're not a human. Yeah, McGowan and Tom Cruise. When right. they are trying to, to just relate to you on a human level, strange things happen. <laughs> yeah. Next time you're watching this episode, Chris, notice that one of the goons is crouched behind the taxi, and then he just kind of stands up. Uh, that's how he comes out of the shadows. And both these dudes are, I think, what would pass for normal today, but back then, they must have seen like giant bruisers. They looked, mm. they, they were probably, you know, the 1967 equivalent of bodybuilders. Yeah. He takes him out because he does that. And then he goes to Six's apartment where Fake Six is lying in his bed and aims a nerve gas gun at a, him. A squirt gun with, it, uh, a with nerve, nerve gas. A nerve gas squirt gun. One squirt. You're paralyzed. Two squirts. You're dead. 
Is that a thing? I don't know, but I can't think of any weapon I would less want on my utility belt. And why? Seems why seems super it? dangerous. Seems dangerous for the operator. Yeah, I mean they, they they don't let them have real guns, no bullets. Uh, yeah, they just have to go to a little light show, and and yet here's a nerve gas gun. Right. And the scene didn't need it because number six is contrite and he's pretending to be, you know, all yeah. scrolled out. He has this, uh, yeah, like he's he's pretending to, to, you know, sometimes in my dreams I I imagine that I resigned my job. And uh, Flapjack Charlie is is just reclining casually on on his bed in the scene. He's keeping the nerve gas squirt gun trained. Yep. On real six, but he seems not to be as alert as uh, you might be in this scenario. And indeed, as soon as as soon as he tries to stand up, that's when the the fist fight, the the six on six, six on six uh, violence, yeah, breaks out. In which fake six gives up the real password just really fast, and and his really own super name. Fast. And, and he says, man. like, I'm fucking Curtis. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's supposed to be a great field man. And he's like, he's he's really not outstanding in that field. He's, he's just, uh, he, he, he just caves. The, the same left corner of the mouth blood trickle that uh, Six got after being roughed up by the rover-worshipping toughs in Free yep. For All. He just gets a little roughed up. He's just, you know, shaken by the collar a couple times. If this guy was ever up against our enemies, like the fate of the free world, don't leave it in this guy's hands. Don't, good Lord. don't leave it to fucking Flapjack Charlie Curtis. Not Flapjack Charlie Curtis. Flapjack Charlie. More like Flipjack Charlie Curtis. Ah, nice. Nice, nice. It's not like John David Washington in Tenet, where he lets them rip his fucking teeth out. Yep. That's how the agency, whatever it is, decides that he has the right stuff. Which apparently yes. is not teeth, I, although they, they give him his teeth back. I have for you a word in a gesture. <laughs> um, they run out of Six's apartment, Rover corners them, and in a bit of a stretch here, uh, it is only because Real Six happens to say the password first. Schizoid man. That Rover accepts him. Fake Six tries to say the same password. Schizoid man. Schizoid man. Schizoid man. And gets killed, which I had a trouble with at first, and then I realized, okay, so what if there are safety protocols on Rover, and he is instructed to detain but not kill number six, yeah. but since those same protocols do not go into effect for number 12, I don't know. Right. Uh, I, I, it doesn't make any sense to me, actually. I have to imagine uh, Rover as sort of an ED-209 device mm-hmm. that does not quite work as as intended. On the commentary here, Pat Jackson says that he, he thinks this is the last episode where they, they shot Rover. Of course, that depends on where this falls in the sequence. I thought Rover was in every episode, but maybe, so maybe that's wrong. That's interesting. This is apparently the only one where we hear Rover referred to by that name. It is, and it's not just Magoon, it's not just Six making a joke like Rover got him like the dog got him. Number two is uh, in a fit of pique, says, deactivate Rover immediately. So it's his official name. Right. So apparently Rover is something that number two has discretion over, can turn off with a phone call, which, Mm -hmm. um, again, as with the apparent fallibility, where, you know, certainly Rover could remain scary if uh, he he might, I just gendered Rover. Mm Mm-hmm. Rover can remain scary if, if Rover might kill you by mistake. But um, this episode generally, I think, takes the, the threat level way down. 
of Rover. For this, there's a scene where uh, Six is driving a mini moke and jumps out to the side, and Rover keeps keeps uh-huh. chasing the mini moke yep. like it's a state trooper in the Blues Brothers or something. Uh huh. Nice. Yeah, uh, and then by the time of the final episode, Rover is again a threat because doesn't it threaten number two in that last episode? I yeah, really I think that's right. I don't know. I, I I thought Jackson might be a little confused. So Real Six goes to two, pretending to be 12, attempting to pass himself up as Flapjack Charlie Curtis. They pass the blame back and forth in a nice kind of workplace agita way, which makes, made a lot of sense to me. Recriminations aren't going to help. It's a disgrace for us both. When do I leave? Uh, Real Six makes a couple goofs that he thinks he recovers from, and then two sends him to talk to 24 before he leaves. Yeah, he, he says, had... I know I said this already. This is number two, believing he is speaking to Flapjack Charlie. And he says, the girl Allison wanted a word with you. Now, again, yep. neither of these guys, I mean, number two knows who she, who she is. Flapjack Charlie just met her, um, but they're referring to her as Allison, which, if anything, I would think would mean that the three of them are on the same team and number six is not part of that team because he sure. doesn't get a name. Well, maybe it's that the the network was like, look, we got a number 12, we got a number six, we got a number two, we got a, you know, like, that's a lot of numbers. Yeah. Can we just, and, and this one's number 24, so people might forget that there's 24 and there's 12, like all of yeah. them. Yeah. Can we just call her the, the girl Allison? Yep, the girl Allison. <laughs> now, when he visits number 24, uh, she does not merit an automatic door opener. Um, she has to let him in. He has to let himself in using his cold, dead hands. Like Even though she has a really high number, numerically, she's worth 10 times what a beautician is worth, roughly. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> but maybe maybe the cutoff is just a 10. Maybe it's just, you know, maybe it only goes up to 10, and then after that, you just have to open your damn door. Six is dressed in his civvies the next morning, and two accompanies him to the helicopter. There's a lot more poking and prodding and back and forth between two and six. Uh, and we get the first real serialization right here because number two in this episode mentions the general which will be the title of the very next episode in which we will meet the general uh number 24 appears at the helicopter very contrite about her betrayal of number six and that is a good scene it's not pushed too hard it's right. not uh, leaning on a crutch of romance it is just two people who uh get each other i'm ashamed of what i did to number six yesterday why are you telling me everyone has to tell someone it was your job. It was a betrayal. Isn't everything we do here a betrayal? It's not often one gets a second chance. There are no second chances. There are sometimes for the lucky ones. If I had a second chance, I want you to know that I wouldn't do it again. Do you think in this scene, number 24 knows that she is speaking to her friend Six and not Flapjack Charlie? Like yes. she has figured it out? No, she got his number, as it were, uh, when he came to visit her. Okay. He, he, yeah. She knew right. right away. Um, at least that's how I interpret her line readings. Six gets in the copter. He promises to give two's regard to fake Six's wife, Susan. Uh, puts on a blindfold. Helicopter goes up, comes down, and then he's greeted by number two with a nice little line reading of Susan. Daddy, here we go, number six. Yeah. Giant head, slam jail doors, credits. Uh, that's it. That's it. This episode. Like why, since number two put it together that he had six in the in the moke with him, why even put him on the helicopter? For I mean, sure. I understand we need a bit of physical action to cap off the episode, I guess. So That's we it. so we need to see a helicopter that is not the helicopter that number six gets into take off and fly around. There's a continuity error there where we're looking at two pretty different looking helicopters. Yeah. I guess there, there just was a mandate. Like we need to have some kind of action scene, even if it's just a helicopter taking off and flying around for 
mm-hmm. a couple seconds. So on one level, this episode's a pretty straightforward, you know, spy, counter-spy, plot-twisty um, approach. But I have read one uh, source, and I'll, I'll name it because we're naming our sources now, The Official Prisoner Companion by Matthew White and Jaffer Ali, who suspect that this episode is, a, is an attack on behaviorism, the science of behaviorism, which is a branch of psychology that postulates that it's environment and environment alone that determines behavior and that we can control human behavior by uh, adjusting the environment and that uh, it's really not about inherent or inherited traits or, or anything. Uh, this is chiefly espoused by B.F. Skinner, the um, Skinner box rat shocking guy in, uh, in the novel Walden 2, about to create a frictionless society, we must alter human behavior uh, which is all that stuff about the left hand, mm. number six, and a frictionless uh, society. Uh, yeah, Walden too thinks it's about a utopia when there's a lot of kind of dystopian elements in it that uh, B.F. Skinner seems to kind of overlook because it is basically about this one dude who controls everything. I certainly see a continuation of the series and McGowan's own anti-psychology, anti, um, anti-science in a way, or at least mm. the, the notion that science can be perverted. This but is another uh, Pat McGowan, Tom Cruise commonality, by the way. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Didn't think about that, but you're right. But then, of course, then he buys the whole ESP bullshit, so then he kind of throws that out the door. <laughs> We're moving away from uh, a placing a primacy on escape. I must escape. I must escape. And this episode, like Free For All, and, and like some of the others that are coming, are about him trying to maintain a sense of identity, yeah. a sense of self, and a sense of integrity in the village. Um, in Free For All, he completely bought the village's game, uh, but here he triumphs over it. And then, no, he doesn't escape, but the episode treats the possibility of escape as kind of like an afterthought. That's not what this yeah. well, this is Yeah, well, this is kind of both. I mean, clearly the uh, preservation of self, of the sanctity of his own mind, is, is the primary objective here. But when he sees an opportunity at escape, you know, why not give it a shot? But uh, yeah, that's clearly secondary. I mean, this is kind of right in between uh, Arrival and the Chimes of Big Ben, sorry, about mm-hmm. physical escape attempts and A, B, and C, where it's just about retaining ownership, control of your mind, your inner mm-hmm. sanctum. Yep. I and my old college roommate, used, we had the VHS tapes. I think I just taped it off of Channel 12 in Philadelphia. And we used to watch uh, these episodes over and over again. And this one was, is one we watched quite a bit, I remember. I think maybe because it, it had such a great hook, such a great gimmick. Uh, and it had two really good performances from Patrick McGowan. Uh, the one coming up, Chris, the general, was one I think we only watched once. Uh, not only because, and we'll get to it when we get to it, but like not only because the final reveal, mm, boy, doesn't really You teased the return of milk-drinking number two, Colin Gordon, who yep, uh, he'll be back. was not one of the number twos who I would have thought really warranted an, an encore appearance. And apparently that episode was taped before mm. uh, A, B, and C. So we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, but I do not remember liking the general that much yeah there's no suggestion in this episode that flapjack charlie has been surgically altered to look like our boy the dirty half dozen original six no he's just he just has a distinct physical advantage because that's because twins happen in the world i guess because there's identical cousins and i don't know what the hell is yeah that's a device that contemporaneously with this the the bond novels and movies used a bunch where the you know surgical alteration of blofeld certainly so he could look like different people the bond films and the prisoner and other spy things would double cast without any seeming intention 
just out of convenience to have a, the same actor we've already seen play a, a different part, which gives them a, a theatrical quality that I enjoy, but I don't really think any of those documents in their time were, were going for that. I think they just counted on the audience not to market. Yeah, there's a whole hell of a lot of stuff we have to buy. We have to buy Rover. We have to buy this the existence of this village. So I think that uh, there's two dudes who have flesh-colored eyebrows. Even when you dye their hair and give them a mustache, they still maintain the same flesh-colored eyebrows. I think that's uh, just something we're supposed to kind of go, yep, sure. Since uh, so much of the appeal of this show, certainly for you, is down to McGowan's vocal performances, mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting that on, on this this commentary track, Pat Jackson, when he, when he spoke about his initial meeting with McGowan, I think he had he had seen that production of Moby Dick rehearsed where McGowan plays Starbuck mm-hmm. and praised that. But he said the first thing he directed McGowan in was a an episode of an anthology series called Rendezvous, where it was a, a 30-minute adaption of an E.F. Benson short story called The Hanging of Alfred Wal- Wadham, where McGowan plays a priest, as he had he had told Jackson that he he considered the priesthood as a as a career. Mm-hmm who fails to save from hanging a man who has been wrongfully convicted of a murder to which another man has come to him and confessed. But he can't break the sanctity of confession and say this other guy actually did it. That was about 10 years before The Prisoner, and and he lamented that McGowan moved to the United States after The Prisoner ended because that, that was the end of their working relationship. So he's talking about McGowan, and, and he, he says this. I wish I could, I could do Jackson's old British man. Give it a shot. Give it a shot. So many people do not realize that their voice is an orchestra. So many use but two notes, and there's no sense of timing. It's gobble, 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 and they all end on a downbeat, particularly the athletes. Particularly the <laughs> athletes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is this guy talking about vocal fry? You think so? Maybe. Like the... Uh, the, the way, huh. Was he talking about cricketers? <laughs> The athletes. I think one of the reasons I like this episode so much is just you get to see Patrick McGowan at his more playful. Um, and it's got an ending, which is an, also a nice mix of triumph and defeat. Um, yes, he didn't escape, but he beat the village at its own game. And um, yeah. we're going to get a lot more of these mixed, ambiguous endings, which don't end in a tidy bow. And when right. they do come, like they do come with uh, Hammer into Anvil, like that, that is a very, that is an out-and-out triumph, and that feels great. I, I mean, I'm going to argue this one is, uh, since the village is um, playing the long game, we, we get number six to fiercely claim his sixhood in this episode, mm-hmm. which he has resisted till now. So that feels right. like a big win for the village. Mm-hmm. You know, you could ask the question of every episode, is it, you know, I am not a number, I am a free man. This is where you might say your name. Yeah, that's a thing that occurred to me, too. He does say in the beginning, I am your number six. He is, he is couching it. He's yeah. saying, in your minds, in, in your lexicon, I am right. number six. Um, as opposed to number 12, who embraces the fact, I am six, 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 six. Yeah, I get that. I take your point. Still seems like a concession to me. Still seems like number six is starting to weaken incrementally. But I did not realize how badly I wanted to see him have a, a friend. As, as confusing as I found it to find him being civil, nay, pleasant with a woman, seeing him and Allison together was nice. So, yeah, I would like to see his just have a nice platonic friendship with number 24. But, of course, she goes yeah. 
Well, she's chastened by what she's done. She wouldn't do it again. Do you have anything else to tease about the general? Punch cards. If you love punch cards, and who doesn't, uh, you're going to love the general. I do love punch cards. What is the data capacity of a, of a punch card? How many, how many megabytes? Oh, who knows? So we are, we are um, recording these with a substantial lead time prior to their release, but um, we're hoping that as they get out into the world, we'll start to hear from our, our listeners. Uh, last episode, we had a strikingly articulate letter from listener... Calvin Lebowski, who probably goes by some sort of nickname, some sort of uh, affectionate compression of Calvin Lebowski, because that's... <laughs> it's, I, I kept waiting. Uh, I kept waiting. Five syllables. That's a, Who's got that kind of time? Uh, also had a nice voicemail from friend of the show, Patrick Flynn of the Original Cast Podcast. You can send us a sound file like Patrick did. Send that to adegreeabsolute at gmail.com, and maybe we'll play it. Yes, Absolutely. We will listen to your blistering takedowns of the stuff we got wrong and your mild appreciation for the stuff we got right. <laughs> we're, we're here for your mild appreciation. Mm-hmm. And your questions. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a series where the questions are just going to keep coming as the as the series goes on and becomes more abstract. We're going to have plenty by, by the time we hit yeah. uh, Fallout. So. Do you think we should try to get Alex Cox on the show? According to his foreword to his 2017 book, dude lives in... Uh, Tucson. Okay. Tucson, Arizona. Right. Presumably that's not like Tucson, Arizona, Lamb's Bottom, Tittycockwood, Manorborn. I, English addresses are funny to me. Glenn. Oh, that's, sure, that's, sure, that's sure. No, there is no. But, uh, I don't believe Tittycockwood. I don't believe there is a, uh, a Tucson in the sectored aisle. Yeah. So I, think we're, I think we're good there. We should try to get him. All right, Chris. Be seeing you. Be seeing you, Glenn. Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemick. I wrote our goofy theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark, singing and playing keyboards, and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion, with Marcus Newstead on the bass. Check out Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com and or VitalVoiceTraining.com. Jonathan's band, Daybringer, is on Bandcamp. You can find them there. Write to the Citizens Advice Bureau at adegreeabsolute at gmail. You can tweet us at notanumberpod. Rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple or Stitcher or whatever platform you use to hear it. And, you know, listener, even though this whole show was Glenn's idea to begin with, I sometimes wonder whether he's got the stamina to stick with it. He gave birth to it and loves it with a passionate love. Probably hates it even more. It's no degree partial, it's a degree absolute. absolute. Yes, I can hear you, Clem Fandango. I am fascinated to see where this is going. Go ahead. Uh, fastest flushing. Fastest flushing, fastest flushing.